You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting to Yes And. Do you want to come see us talk live on the Getting to Yes And podcast? Well, I'm going to be talking to Keegan-Michael Key, Second City alum, and L. Key about their new book, The History of Sketch Comedy, A Journey Through the Art and Craft of Humor, on October 5th at 7 p.m., at the Francis Parker School. This is part of the Chicago Humanities Festival. If you want to get tickets, go to chicagohumanities.org. Today's guest is my old friend Mike Lucas, who has worked as an international touring stand-up comedian, appearing on The Tonight Show, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, the Just for Laughs Festival, and Aspen Comedy Festivals. He was the host and co-writer of The Straight Dope on A&E. He also trained at the Second City and was an original cast member for Second City's run at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas. And we have some fun stories about that. He's got a great new book. It's called Finding Your Funny Muscle, How to Create Laughs Like a Pro. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk By the boss with the elegant watch The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock Mark the moments till the ticking stops Mike Lucas, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Kelly. It's been a while since we've talked and I'm looking forward to it. It has been a while. Too long! So, right, isn't that what you have to say? It's been too long. It's maybe it's been just right. Maybe that's you know maybe this is the perfect timing for this. We should not. Question. Well, we're 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 in our Lord's year of 2023, um, <laughs> and right. I'm imagining we met in the late 90s. I believe it was the um, mid 90s because that was right when I started the program. So 90, I love what you call so, the program. I, the program. I, I began the program. <laughs> Which it, it kind of is. Well, and, and it was for me because I was a stand-up and I was going into the improv world and I had to almost deprogram from being a comedian who is looking for laughs and begin to be a listener. <laughs> is this 95, 96, like in there? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. It was, it was right then. Wow. And I, I, yeah. I'd moved to Chicago. I mean, I grew up going to second city. So I, I, I was a fan from, from birth, you know, my uncle lives there my dad grew up there. And, and so they, he, he would take me to those shows. So I saw all the um, early I mean, what a time shows. to walk in, walk in oh, the second great, city. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I got to see like, like Colbert and mm-hmm. that, that group. Yep. And then um, I got to, um, yeah, watch all of those people kind of rise up and then go to the bigger screens. And, and it just, you know, I just wanted to do it ever since I was a kid, but stand up came first. And then I was like, ah, well, frame of, frame of reference to what, what people might not know is like in the 1980s, when you and I were sort of babies and coming up and trying to figure out what we were doing, and I wanted to be a playwright, you want to be a stand up, but the 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 odds. I mean, the one thing I wanted to be a playwright for is I knew David Mamet was a dishwasher at Second City, and I became a dishwasher at Second City. So I'm like, I'm right. <laughs> but 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 what people right. might not know is the boom in stand up in the '80s was nuts. It was nuts. Yeah, and and everybody who had any jokes could get a gig, and that ended up backfiring eventually. But, it but at the time, it was seen as like this gold mine. Clubs all over Chicago. Yeah, people, and, and not just clubs, it was also one-nighters would open up. Yes, so right. you've got these um, weekend clubs that are owned by a booker, and then these uh, weeknight one-nighters scattered around the city, and then they would basically pay for the weekend comics so that these bookers are you know getting free comedy in their own club. And it was it was a real cool racket, I guess, if you're on that side of the equation. And for us, it was stage time. Do you, did you remember when Matt Dwyer, who was an alum of Second City, started Midnight Bible School here? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I think like, I was. I think I did a couple sets in that one. That was that, that's a um, unbelievable lineups. I mean, if you do, you remember like Zach oh, yeah. was here. Yeah, Sarah. 
Tina was, I think, did some sets. Uh, mm-hmm. Amy Tina did, set. did some sets. Um, yeah, that that was what I liked about that show was the audience. Boy, like they wanted clever, but they also wanted, um, you know, um, unique. Yeah. And that you really had to understand um, your own voice if you wanted to um, be successful in that club crowd, because these were very intelligent and hip uh, comedians who were also in the business. So, boy, it's it's like in any of those industry shows, it, was, it kind of became one of those. Yeah, very and difficult. it was it was. It was such a, it was very, very much um, looking at what the future of, of that art form might be. And in what was a traditionally sort of hostile relationship, stand up and improv, yeah. attempting to bridge that. I love that because I was always trying to do that as well. And yeah. um, that, that was that that show definitely did that. And, and, it, and it forced us comedians to look at our craft a little bit differently because the audience was tr- as a trained improvisation and um sketch audience and they they responded things differently than a stand-up audience does they're 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 even they're usually much more sober um you know on on average you know but Mm -hmm. uh yeah and i I remember we did i produced a show at zany's trying to do the same thing called the riff actually by then we called it chicago riffs and um it was a second sort of coming of this show and we were doing sort of a a long form improv meets stand-up monologue thing so what we, the game of the show was we had our our house our house mc group uh or i mean our house um improv group was uh amy poehler and um matt mm-hmm. besser and you know their their whole um the upright uh, citizens brigade before they, before they went month. to new york so so mm-hmm. we got them the month before they, they stopped doing our show because they moved to new york like that's how mm-hmm. that timing was and so they would basically be our improv troupe and stand-ups would go up and tell the story you weren't allowed to do your bits you had to tell a story but because we're comedians the story would come out funny, funny. and then yeah. you know the ucb would just go out there and 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 crush uh you know and and and, and do their scene work based on those suggestions and it was it was it was a lot of fun but again they moved so it was like well there goes the show yeah all right i, I actually have a first question for you and i i blew it off in terms of our, our familiarity <laughs> because we know each other but let me, i want to ask it to you because I, I thought about this oh yeah and what, what i tried to do with the podcast and a lot of times i'm interviewing academics and other folks. And so I have to make this sort of justification for why they might be wanting to talk to me. And of course, this book is very clear in terms of why, why we might have a conversation. However, yesterday I interviewed Jeff Sweet, who is just releasing a revised version of his book, Something Wonderful Right Away, which is an oral history of the second city that was originally published in 1978. And one of the themes I took away from the book is that the more things change, the more they stay the same at a place like Second City. But I also sense that's true in comedy as well. So styles, manner, tone, all of that changes. But at its essence, this work is about finding the truths and what it means to be a human being. Mm. Does that track for you? That does. Yeah, and and the the thing about stand-ups is like the more – uh, the better you get at doing the craft, the more you consider what you just said. And yeah. in the beginning, you really are, you're like, like, like an infant thrown into a deep end of a pool and you're just trying to like fight for breath and like get laughs. And you're just, you know, you're, you're you don't even know how to hold the microphone yet. So you're just doing things where you're just, mm-hmm. you know, you're just trying to please this crowd of people who don't know you. And, and, you know, that's the hardest jump is to go from making your friends and family laugh to strangers who are paying money. And it's just a big difference. And then as you, begin to get more sophisticated as a, a joke deliverer mm-hmm. like you like my, my whole thing i say i say you you have to go from being a like a corner quipper somebody who just whips out jokes and in, in, in from from any point of view to being someone who has a comedy lens somebody who understands their the portal through which they look at life based on who they are and 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 the th- struggles that they have and the things that, that come up in their life that that make them want to make jokes and then when you begin to have that lens your comedy begins to be not only funnier but more relatable and more memorable and that's the key with, with what you're talking about is the things that never change but but stay the same is is people love stories and when you can mm-hmm. tell your story about your quirky angle um uh, you know and, and every good comic has a, a lens like that then you begin begin to be more memorable and more um more relatable and so your humor suddenly becomes instead of a guy who at the office at the coffee machine who's cracking wise about you know the the president it becomes about a friend who's telling you a story that's personal and and is is having laughs with with it and then that 
is way more connecting than any just joke. And, and that's what I found that that's why I wrote the book I wrote is because I didn't have a comedy lens. that was very clear or very effective when I was trying to make it big, you know, when I had some big audiences in, in front of me and that was my downfall or the, at least the ceiling that I hit was who is this guy and why should we care? He's funny. He certainly is funny, but, but I don't like, like, why, why is he funny? What, where is he coming from? You know, I, like I had my style down, but I didn't have my lens down. And so now I, 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 you know, with a lot of introspection, I realized I'm the clumsy Aspie hole mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm, I'm, I identify on the Asperger spectrum and I'm this guy who um, I, I, my biggest laughs come from mocking my inability to physically and emotionally live up to the standard, which I hold the world. I, I, you know, like us Aspie holes are, you know, we notice and notify, we interject and correct, but yet we're always at fault for the very things that we get, blame the world on. And so that, that I found out that that's where my humor comes from. And organically, some of my bits that did really well in the old days have that lens, but now I can do it purposefully and I can begin to you know, exercise it like a muscle, as I say. So everything you're saying is of course true for a comedian. I would suggest it is true for anyone who is trying to be self-actualized as a human. But that's what I've been realizing with this book, Kelly. It's fantastic. People have been coming up to me. I have one woman who was in her seventies and she was like, you know, I read your book and um, I never thought about this, but I think I'm kind of that person. My lens would be like, I get real excited about things and I jump aboard. And then I realize, oh boy, I'm not prepared to do any of the things I thought I was going to do. And then I have to either let someone down or I have to admit it and, and, and go ahead and do it, but reluctantly. And she, and she was like, I try, I talked to a few of my friends and ran that lens by them. They were laughing and they said, yeah. yes. And so yeah. here's a woman who lived 70 years and never thought about this stuff. And suddenly she's examining her own, uh, uh, her own lens, her own persona, her own, like, like what I say, the things that make you interesting to strangers that you might um, want to mention in a crowded elevator. Right, 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 right. And, and it's interesting, the work that we've done with the behavioral science community, one of the things that we, an early study that we drew on was from our friend Nick Epley, was that human beings are kind of reluctant to share personal details because they think other people aren't interested. Right. And what, what, you, what you know, and I know in terms of our expertise in comedy is like, oh, no, no, no. They love that. There's, <laughs> that's all we want to hear. <laughs> that's all we, there's a reason Seinfeld was so popular, which right. is like, yeah, show about nothing. It's about everything. It's about everything. Yeah. That, well, his, his lens to, you know, to make a big deal out of nothing is, is brilliant because yeah. – you know, but that's a, that's a reflection of his personality, like the, the, the culture he grew up in and the way he b- looked at life. He was literally bothered by the fact that things are brushed over and, and he began to just stop and go, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're running right past these things that are so basic. And then you begin to, you know, you name it and claim it, whatever that basic thing is, you give it a name and you keep repeating it. And all of a sudden now everybody's laughing at it, you know. Uh, so I want you to tell a couple stories that I- exist in the book. So one of the things, and I actually didn't know this about you, that you were in a frat. Actually, no, I did know that. Um, but you were assigned uh, a kind of a frat mentor. Yeah, a big brother. Uh, they, they give you a big brother when you first come in. And talk about this guy. This guy, um, well, his nickname was Flammer. And, uh, but, uh, basically because that was his last name at, at okay. first, you know, I, I didn't know this. I just thought like, for whatever reason, I thought he Flammer. at one point flammed something. So he became flammer, you know, sure. one who flams, but that turns out to be his last name. And so rich, uh, well, flammer, um, the story I tell in the book is he had us over his, we were, you know, uh, when you're pledging a fraternity, you're basically slaves to these guys, the, the older brothers. And then they sort of put you through the ringer until that you, you, you prove that you want to be part of this uh, group. And, um, so, uh, I'm over at his house cleaning up. And so he calls me over and, and, um, and, uh, he, we, first of all, he, you know, we, uh, we smoke up and he has me chuck a beer. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so at first I'm thinking he's going to haze me more, but no, he's like, he's, he's getting me a little bit juiced. And then, um, and then he says, he wants to tell me the meaning of life. So I'm like, I'm, I'm prepared to hear something really, yeah. really big and important. And uh, he kind of draws it out. And so I'm, you know, more weed, more drinks. And so, so he finally lays it on me. He says, Mike, you're going to find that life, there are fun guys and there are fun guy. And I was like, Okay. And I had no clue what he was talking about. I I just knew that, you know, it was a play on words. You couldn't I, Google it. I couldn't Google it at the time. Yeah. This was, this was last century before Google was even invented. There was no Google. 
there was no Google. And so I, w- I had no clue. And I have a better idea of what he meant now. I mean, now that I had some retrospect, but at the time I had no clue what he was talking about. And then in the book, what the point I make is that I realized it wasn't the meaning of life that he gave me. It was, it was the meaning of comedy, how comedy works, because what comedy does um, what the, the best jokes, what they do is they set up an expectation of, of, of normalcy and, and, um, it gets your brain thinking in a certain way. And then with that same setup, what they do is they deliver a surprise, something that's, that you don't expect, but still fits in, it still satisfies that setup. And w- when you laugh is when you get that, that thing that they just told you that you wouldn't have thought of still satisfies that setup. You get that those two are still the same. So, what, uh, what, what, you know, in his case, he was doing a sort of a play on words. And so, um, the, the payoff isn't that big. I say in the book, I say, you know, uh, wordplay typically ends up at the groaner table, you know, right, sitting right, around. Because, right. like you know, yeah, but, but a good pun, like there, there's a pun, I mean, good so, pun can be solid. Sure. They're very solid. Yeah. And, 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 uh, they tend to make more intellectual people laugh because there's that connection. There's, there's a, a real, uh, high level, um, uh, world connecting going on there that, that, that doesn't occur to you that people are, are pleased by, you know, if, if, mm-hmm. if, if, if someone else comes up with it. So my, um, my, I guess what, what I began to realize was that, um, when you want to begin to make people laugh, you have to first set them up to think of the most normal thing that you, that this premise would lead to. And then you have to begin to get really good at giving them something different that still satisfies that setup. And in my book, what I do is I give you 36 humor heightening devices that allow you to do that. And so that's a real, um, a mechanical way to practice, like as if you're practicing playing a guitar or a, a trumpet or a tennis racket, you, you're really finding out how, how is a laugh? I call it flexed. Cause I, I say it's funny. doesn't, it's not a bone, but bones are stiff and rigid and, and, um, and they break funny is, is flexible and, and, uh, and grows with use like a muscle. And so that's where I came up with the funny muscle idea and these humor heightening devices. And you, you know, from improv, heightening is the key to getting laughs. It, it's, it's a uh, yes ending and, and, and exploring a, a thing to a higher level that, that doesn't occur to you. And these heightening devices that I have allow you to do that and practice that mechanically until you can get it right and, and it drop to your muscle memory. It's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, this is such a clear concept inside, especially joke telling. And one of the things that in the conversation with Jeff, uh, so so the first time around when he wrote the book, he had done this interview with Viola Spolin, the mother of improvisation, and she refused to have it included. What? Yeah, she wouldn't let it Uh, because she was tired of people making money off her. And he's like, look, it's a book. I'm making no money. I'm not making anything. So I make a nickel uh, a book lady. Yeah. So uh, uh, the, the estate said yes this time. And one of the okay. lines that she says is she's asking her son, Paul Sills, what improvisation is. And she's like, look, I understand ad libbing. And I know a lot of people who say they're doing improvisation are actually ad libbing. What is improvisation? And Paul doesn't know, but what they sort of agree on is that at its heart, it ends up being transformation. Right. And I think that is the difference when you turn joke telling pure comedy into a theatrical experience and into a a narrative format. Let's just say that, which is, and it doesn't have to like, like, like there's plenty of stuff that lives on that surface and that's fine for certain people. But for those of us who want to go the next step deeper, it's like, well, I kind of want to know more about the human condition and you're going to get that when you get the transformation. And then that's the sort of like, I see myself in this. Oh no, I see myself in this. <laughs> and that that's the beauty of that comedy lens that I I, I preach is right. you you really um when you have a clear comedy lens all of your material becomes to the audience very uh clear uh in terms of that lens you 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 begin to say see oh I get where they're coming from and typically either you come from the same place because you're a fan of that person or you know somebody if you're new to this comic you're like oh my god that reminds me of this person so then th- that connection allows for more laughter because you there, there's more relatability to it and um I, I think that's key and when you're talking about a transformation when you're a headliner that like that's the difference between being an opener and a middle and a headliner it's mm-hmm. it's it's the level to which you are committed to that transformation for your crowd and an opener is like i said you're literally just trying to survive out there you're trying to get laughs you're trying to figure out who you are on stage the middle act is beginning to understand that a transformation needs to take place i need to um begin to uh bring these people in uh, on on a certain uh, uh place and then ha- they need to leave at another place having known who i am and why i think the world is funny and what what my why my struggle are hilarious you know and, and or at least the way i face them and then but you're not still not quite under is uh, a middle act 
clear on that. Whereas a headliner, that's you're booking somebody who is very clear on that story. And that's what it is. If you, if you really want to get down to the nuts and bolts of it, it's a story. And, and you're, 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 people have longed to hear stories since the dawn of time. It's like, yeah. how can I vicariously live some struggles and watch you either fight them and survive or fight them and fail, but I don't have to go through it personally, but I get to, I get to vicariously feel it through you. And, and the best comedians and, the, and certainly the best improvisers provide that for their crowds. Uh, so you were a, a founding member of Second City Las Vegas. <laughs> that is, yep. Yes. Yes. Oh, I was so proud of that. I got uh, to. And I, got I have a couple, a couple things I want to talk to you about about Woo! that experience. Yeah, that was a wild one. Uh, we were it's all. Like, it's like the, the main claim dis- disclaimer. I, I'm kind of on a main stage, right? Right. It was a resident stage. It was. Right, yeah, for sure. You're on yeah. the alumni list. Um, I, now, where was where was Carrot Top in our world at that point? Well. Well, he's always been a friend of mine. His name's Scott Thompson, and um, yep. I, I I have been a big fan of him. He's one of those people that had such a clear comedy lens. Um, this, this is a side note. You, you can use this or not, but th- I was in a workshop in Florida, and and um, Scott Thompson walks in, and he says his name is Carrot Top. He's, he's like, he's, I don't know, yeah. he's probably maybe 17 at the time. And so he comes in, and he's like, I want to try my stuff out. And the woman who runs the workshop is like, okay. Vicky Rousman. Yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah. Vicky. Yeah. And Vicky can't stand and prop acts she's just like she's just hates them and um and she but she hates all like gimmicky stuff sure. she's just she's trying to help us find like a real true stand-up persona so poor scott comes in and you know i mean you've been to these workshops they suck i mean you try to be yeah. funny at them and people are staring at you and if you can get them to laugh it's like getting lauren michaels to laugh at your audition for snl it's almost impossible but if it happens you're just like a miracle well scott goes in there carrot top starts doing his props and he has us rolling and we're just mm-hmm. laughing and dying and we're like oh my god this guy is a headliner he knows what he's doing he's just got material so then there's a you know applause break we're, we almost like give him a standing o and, and and so he's like out of breath at the end of it and he's holding like six of his props still and so it's like you know vicky but well, what do you think and she's like oh wow you did really well she's like my suggestion i, I would lose the props <laughs> that was her like that was the big takeaway and, and we all were like what and it was like oh my god, no. well, i get i get it I get it. Right, yeah. Be more observational. Defi- Just be the redheaded guy who, who No, he's defied all odds with the props, let's be honest. Right. And and Scott, like that was his main thing. He'd been doing that since he'd been a kid. Like that he was born and and um raised to do that 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 sort of um uh, the next Gallagher kind of a thing. And so well, but that was and, that and, was and he's actually calling back to a certain kind of vaudeville act. He really is. I think which is I think also something that unless you understand the sort of historical pre, uh, precedent of this work, you don't get that, that, that feeds um, a certain kind of, like, and what we call it in terms of second city shows is when someone does a skill piece. That's a skill piece. Absolutely. And, and the thing about you, you, you that people don't understand about uh carrot top or Scott is he, like, he doesn't just go to the, you know, a store and buy and go, this is a crazy thing. I'm going to, I'm going to show the crowd this. He creates these, he invents these things. That's where the skill is involved. He combines worlds that you wouldn't want normally think to combine and he does it visually. And then he presents it as an excellent performer. So he's got all these things coming together. And that's where I think people just assume that he's just like sort of, you know, taking shortcuts and there's no right. way he does. He really has. And then if you ever see him behind the scenes, he's got a warehouse that he's got to keep track of all the props he's ever invented so it's it, it comes down to like almost an inventory situation yeah yeah <laughs> but anyway but he wasn't there i don't think when when second city you know it wasn't he wasn't on one of the stages so he like, might you know he might have been but, but he wasn't what he was now like now he's like a one of those staples. oh no he's huge there yeah well so one of the things i want to talk about because one of my memories of las vegas so when we landed there and we didn't we didn't know what we were doing. Let's just all be honest. There was no research. At a certain point, someone made a deal and told me we were doing this. And I then told you, do you want to do this among, among this group of, I think, nine of us went out. Yeah. Um, and um, we, we, <laughs> we got this lodging, right? This was this just off the strip. I think you could walk, right? Oh, the, yeah. Yeah. The yeah. It's like a, 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 a corporate condos, you could call them. And what I loved about this, and this was actually years later, is the producer that we had when we started was our friend Robin Hammond, um, uh, then Robin Johnson. And and we, uh, for the producers, we just got like this 
uh, one place that had like two bedrooms so that like when I would go there, I'd crash so I wouldn't have to like pay for a hotel or whatever. Sure. Y- years later, uh, when she moves to Chicago, um, my wife, I'm, I'm like, oh, there's Robin from Las Vegas. And Anne just assumed it was Robin was a guy. Um, and as we know, of course, Robin is beautiful. Right. She's gorgeous. She's tall like a model. And she, yeah. yeah, she was a beauty queen, Southern beauty queen. It's like, wait right. a second. That's Robin. That's that, that's not who Batman that hung out with Batman. No, that was not. It was not Robin Gibb either. It was right. uh, someone different. Um, uh, but then our our friend Jason, um, who um, is is fairly well known now, especially with his. Does, I think he does okay. I think he does. I think right. he's got. He might have a show on Apple TV that just concluded. Right. Yeah. His um, like he was so uh, fun to to room with that Jason Sudeikis. We're talking about for yep. those who. Uh, are coming late to the Vegas party. <laughs> and what was interesting, because um, he he was, uh, or he still is, uh, George Went, the, you know, yeah, uh, his, nephew. Fame, his nephew. And so that was, you know, when we first talked, he mentioned that, um, and I was just, I love Cheers and I loved Norm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just was like, oh, well, I, I like this guy already, you know, and, and he had a, a, Jason has a confidence about him that um, is sort of infectious. It's like, it's like, oh, like, it's like three notches before like a jerk. And like, so, exactly. so he's like yeah. confident and funny and, um, but, but silly, like, so in mm-hmm. the silly takes him below the sort of the, um, alpha jerk phase, but, but he's confident. So, so, but you, but people are drawn to that. And, and, um, as a performer, he was just, uh, you know, on these second city stages, he was one of these guys like Kakowski where their brain has a, um, like an encyclopedia sort of quality to it. And they could draw anything out that they've ever heard. And they could um, bring it to, to light on stage in a moment, you know, that perfectly timed. Whereas my brain is more like a, a library of encyclopedia books of all the things I've ever learned. But but it's been all like all the uh, shelves have been knocked over. And so the books are piled in the middle. So I'm in there like sorting through the books, trying to find the reference that you're talking about. And I'm like, ah, it's too late now. Here it is right here. Uh, uh, President Truman. Ah, too late. You know. So uh, uh, we'll talk but, about talk about to the the bit he did, which is legendary uh, in the right. lore of Second City uh, Road experiences, even though this was a, a sit down. It was um, it was so funny. Um, it, well, and Jason, you know, the, one of the things about improv is, you know, you find the game and then you play it and you heighten it. And that's that's sort of a, a key uh, part uh, of that craft. And. And so he found a game that was incredibly funny. We at the Meridian, they would have these. um I guess there, there would be like pieces of paper that were like announcements and they're really kind of the way they were written. It was like the most mundane things written to be the most exciting things in the world. Yes. Like, you know, uh, an investor is coming to talk to you about your retirement Meridian ve- residents only come on in and, and learn about the future of uh, economics or whatever. And, and, but the way they, it was real. So he would always laugh at, 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 at the presentation of these. And so he said, I'm going to start coming up with my own. So we, you know, we, you know, he's my roommate and, and we're, we're sitting there on the couch and we're just typing away and just coming up, just brainstorming these things. And so he takes it a whole nother level and goes to Kinko's and starts printing these things off. And so he hangs them up, these notices amongst the other ones that are legitimate. So you, so, so, so like you get ones like, um, uh, think you can dunk on an NBA all-star former N- uh, national basketball association, uh, great. Uh, Magic Johnson will be here at the Meridian to to take on all comers. <laughs> you know, now's your chance to see if you got what it takes. Meridian residents only, uh, and and uh, proper dress, uh, you know, uh, uh, required. And, you know, uh, things like you know, um, ever thought you could wrestle an alligator? Now's your chance to find <laughs> out when uh, zoo uh, zookeeper blah 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 comes in. You know, in the secondary pool. You know, uh, uh, and then or. or <laughs> um, are you would you are you looking to be a stunt driver well well you know tomorrow morning we're going to clear out the parking garage and you know um, famous racer you know whatever is going to come in and teach you how to spin uh you know senior senior residents only and he would just and, and this just kept going on and there was one after another and each one kept getting funnier and weirder and to the point where the person at the Meridian had to call up, you know, you guys and go, hey, yeah, listen, they, 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 they pinpointed this. who was responsible. And y'all are going like, we do. <laughs> we know exactly who this is. Yeah, we know exactly who did this. Yeah. And, and, and Jason, I mean, I'm talking like like probably like two weeks, three weeks that he yeah. did this. He didn't stop. I mean, it was yeah. like, and I stopped like I, within about a week and a half, I got tired of it and I stopped. He was like, nope, still yeah. going. And, and they just kept getting funnier. 
Yeah, well, that's that's heightening. Um, <laughs> that's, that's heightening. That's heightening. Uh, we've had Peter McGraw on the podcast twice, uh, and uh, you talk about and and I want to like this, his his theory around benign violation theory. My wife, who just submitted her book on comedy theory to Northwestern, so it'll be published in a year. Um, has has a, a um, quibble uh, with him, but uh, what? And I want to talk to you about that because you actually bring it up. I think not in relation to that, but in the book. So, can you explain what the benign, benign violation theory, as as McGraw talks about it, in the context of of, of the book? Sure, it, it it it's one of the things. It was in his TED talk, and it really changed how I began to look at the whole idea of premise setup and punchline. Because what the benign violation theory sort of says is, laugh comes. A laugh, laughter comes when you benignly violate an expected norm. Uh-huh. And so what, a, what a, a, a premise does is it just sort of gets the people thinking about where what you want to talk about. What a setup does, it, what it's supposed to do is get the audience in terms of that topic to think about an expected result of whatever the story is going to be. So that's the norm that, that McGraw talks about. So then what he says is that in order to get a laugh, you must not only violate that norm, but you must do it benignly. So, so, um, and that's where I talk about where you have to heighten with these heightening devices and you have to give them something that satisfies that setup. Um, but, but is unexpected. So, so we're talking about the same thing, but I love the way he phrases it because, well, just the term benign violation is, is, is fantastic, you know, comically. There's, there's so many, um, funny things happening in that. The idea that you can use the word violate and, and, and somehow think that you, you, you know, yeah. anyone is going to be okay with that. But, but he's like, benignly, benignly. Yeah. I but, think that the, yeah. the thing is funny when Ann talks about this, she share her sort of comedy trio is, uh, pain, distance, and recognition. Yeah. So p- pain being another kind of sort of violation, distance being, you know, well, what, what can I do now that I can do later, but also can be physical and all that. And the one thing I think McGraw is, is, is missing because you bring it up too in the terms of callbacks, which is simple recognition. Yeah. There's no violation. What people people sometimes simply laugh at, oh, I've seen that thing, which is sometimes yeah. a character who was in the first act shows up in the background of the second act. And there is is one of those things of like, oh, and I think there's actually a, a pretty I, I haven't seen other people talk about this because I think it is very unique and interesting. And there's probably more playing there, which is why? Why simply because we recognize something are we laughing at it? It's not all the time. But it is often that all you have to do is stick like – and Mick Napier, who was your director and, and, and worked with me a lot, was a master of this, of like just popping something in the show later that appeared in the first act. And you're like, oh, my God, that thing got a laugh. Yeah. It, it's really curious, isn't it? There's a mm-hmm. – there's a one of the um, – Thing the recognition is a is a heightening device, and it's it's the yeah. ability to take something that people like a common uh it, it could be a visual, it could be a word, it could be a phrase, it could be a, a way that we term something, but it's something that's in a sort of the um um the 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 pot of of what we all know about, and you you pull that in there, but it, it's got to be in the right place though. That that it's got to really mm-hmm. it's got to be a thing that satisfies that setup in a way that you weren't expecting, but, yeah. but then there's another level to it where you go, and I know what that thing is. I know what four, eight, four billion hamburgers sold is. I, I know that that's the McDonald's sign. So I get the extra laugh from that. Yeah. But I think there's all like some, I mean, you, you can't like Mick has proved many times. You just have to throw it out there sometimes and it will get the laugh. But I think it goes a, a little bit more complicated than that because of, you know, the wiring in your head. And no, 100%. Well, that's the math part of it. It really is, is it, right? This is the interesting thing because, Okay, so to be successful in comedy, and I think this is true in all the different forms, there's that understanding of sort of the social, cultural, human aspect and math. And normally a bunch of us were never good at one or the other. And so when you find the people who kind of like, and this is the thing that always amazed me with Matt, uh, with Mick, is he's a math nerd. So he had both that lived experience of weirdo outsider Right. Both of us with this idea of, oh, no, I get what this equation might look like. And so I can play like a mixing board and often uses that sort of example. And it's really kind of a, a, a stunning feat. And I think what you say in your book, which is all that stuff can be learned and you, you give examples. And then but the real hard thing and this is what everyone has to do is just do it over and over and over again. And that's hard. 
Well, and so is learning, you know, three chords on a guitar. And, and so is... And then doing uh, it over to get your houses. a tennis ball over a net and then, and then beginning to play an actual game. So, you know, but you can practice these things and, and get them... Uh, get them more into your muscle memory if you know what to practice. And that's what I'm trying to do with my book. Is yeah. I'm trying to give uh, not just professional comedians, but also people who are um, just want to be funnier, something that they can actually practice. And to apply these heightening devices over and over again is that practice that I mentioned. And my second book that I'm about to finish now is fine-tuning your funny muscle, which sort of goes into more detail. All 36 of those heightening devices goes, give more uh, uh, details and examples, and then also takes a, a, a comedy bit from the very beginning and heightens it 36 different times using each of those devices to show you how that works on a new idea. It's interesting. So something that you're doing with this book that I have not seen in a lot of the, and I've read so many of these, uh, of the various comedy books is in the same way that you get a book. If you're a beginning guitar player with here's a series of scales, here's a series of scales. You just have to do them over and over again. And then you'll get the like Beatles, whatever book to you right. know, figure out that, but it's meaningless without the other, a lot of the comedy books. And I think because comedians want to show off how smart they are, uh, forget that that other part was the thing that they all did. Yeah. And that's, that's, it's a, it seems basic, but if you don't know what to practice, it's very frustrating. And if you, and the thing about um, my book is to, the first thing you do is you figure out what's your lens. And, yeah. and one of the things that's frustrating about being funny is if you don't have a lens, you literally could go any direction. So, so, you know, I, I used to sit that's when the ceiling I hit where I was like, I need new material fast. Uh, what's funny. Um, a spray bottle on my desk, uh, a glass of water. What's funny about a headset? You know, you I would just go around and look at the world and go, I don't know how to look at it, but now with a lens, I'm the clumsy aspie hole. So now everything I look at, I, I'm I'm looking at it through that lens so that it has an element of that to start out with. So it's it's about how how in this what am I noticing and what am I notifying people like with unsolicited information? What what am I what am I noticing that's not correct and I'm I'm feeling that the need to correct it? You know, as a dad or as a, as a person who's in a marriage or as a person who's walking down the street and interacting with other people, and it begins to really narrow down uh, in a good way. Um, my take on on why things are funny, and then it, it doesn't limit you as as it, it, you might think, because um, what it, what it, it does is it it focuses you, and and um, focusing doesn't limit you because no. you can apply this lens to anything and everything. But what it does is it gives you that first step. You go, oh, this, you know, and every single. You know, like like Jerry Seinfeld, when he goes to look at something new, he looks for the thing that 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 most people overlook, and he tries to make a big deal out of it. And then and he does it in different and clever ways. And the better he gets at his own lens, the less you can see it on the surface of what he's doing. Well, people, I, one of the things that people miss all the time is creativity desires constraints. Yeah. If you've just got this giant, you know, nothing, you know, it's like there's nothing, there's nothing interesting that's going to happen. So you have a stage that is a very specific size. Mm-hmm. You have a kind of audience in front of you. That's a very specific audience. And what I think, you know, cause you toured. So, so, and, and you understudied and you did all those things. It's like yeah. the, 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 the college gig compared to Las Vegas compared to Chicago wildly different and you if you're going to be successful have to figure out how you make that slight adjustment without losing the thing that makes you funny jesus hold on sorry i I keep forgetting that you're also running a dental office there where you uh where you oh my god this guy well this is here no i'm leaving this in uh this is this is what we discovered that none of our alarm systems worked and i'm only saying this now there you go this is classic comedy hold on one second mike okay okay he yeah, said that. he said he's done drilling <laughs> God. yeah all our alarm systems none of them work this guy walked in today with like boxes of like oh yeah they all need to be replaced i'm like all right good, good to know good to know <laughs> could have broken in here at any given time and taken all the all the jewels that we really have all that works is a sign in your front yard that's the thing that's the real alarm system Just I, 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 we should have thought of that we really should have thought of that um <laughs> So I'm curious, too, in terms of you did this very interesting swing that not, quite frankly, is so much more representative of 1960s Second City when you had David Steinberg, Robert Klein, Joan Rivers work here, who, who were, all became very important stand-up comedians. That did not exist after that period. 
and and only sort of I think TJ would be one who who came in TJ Miller um, uh, and and you're another. So I'm just sort of curious out of all that experience, what did you take away? And it can be positive and negative. I mean, I think that there, 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 there's probably elements of both in terms of that, because you, you had a national stand-up career. You were on The Tonight Show. And that is, that is a different world than what it is to do the Second City stuff. Well, the first thing I would say is uh, I, I took a massive pay cut. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> That was the first thing I noticed. Oh my God, I feel like now I know what teachers feel like. Uh, you know, where you you have a valuable skill and and no one wants to pay you for it. And 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 we were happy to do it because, you know, when you're when you're getting stage time as an improviser, it's just gold. And when you're getting in front of a paid crowd, it's even it's even richer. And so um that was the first thing I noticed that I had to I had to really um turn that part off. I had to say um you know I cuz I was still gigging so I could I could finance my career, you know my bills and stuff by 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 you know farming out some stand up stuff. But I my style of stand up was so conducive to an improvising world that I had to make the crossover. I just I like like I had to learn to do better the things that I was doing organically as a stand up, which was a lot of these act outs. And my my big my one of the things I realized in terms of my performance, um, I'm an enchanter. I'm sort of an uh, anthropomorphizer. I'm I'm somebody who can look at something and give you the other voices and other uh, angles of, of, uh, like, like what you would say where you're zooming out and looking at all yeah. the different ways that you, it, which is, which is really a, like a, a, a kind of cognitive empathy, mm-hmm. really forcing yourself to begin to see what, what are other people dealing with in the situation? And my comedy was always, um, part of that. It was, it was always like, here's the joke. And then here's the act. In fact, I remember the bit. Do you remember the bit I, when you were, um, um, deciding whether or not I was going to be part of the touring company, mm-hmm. you had me do some stand up, or maybe it was just to get into the program, uh, the program, the, uh, um, uh, no, I think it was, tour- I think it was touring company. Yeah. And, and I remember you said, you know, Oh, I, I hear you do some stand up. Why don't you do some, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is always makes me laugh. Cause I'm like, Oh man, I'm not good at just like, Oh now. And here is my yeah, stand up. Yeah. But I, but I did, I did that bit about um, living with a, a woman. And I said, um, I don't know if you remember it, but I said, you know, um, when, when you live with someone um, it's so much harder to break up with them, you know, especially if you have a lot of stuff, you know, cause then, then I did the whole act out where it was like, you know, um, I, it's not working out. I'm getting my, my, uh, dishes and plates. I'm getting my, uh, 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 this, this sofa bed and uh, look, we can work this out, you know? And then, the, and, I, and it was funny because I, I, I didn't have much after that. And I was afraid you were going to make me do more time, but then you uh-huh. cut me off. I got good laugh. I got a, like a little bit of an applause break. And, and then, and then you were like, okay, that's great. And it, and it showed you that my standup wasn't, I'm not a one-liner guy. In fact, I was very no. much missing the, the, the written part. That, that was what I realized was my big thing. I was going from premise to punchline and I was forgetting about the setup step. And right. that, that's part of the craft of doing stand up that you must have in there because otherwise I, I say it's just like a speech, you know, like you're trying to do a funny speech and the, the craft of, um, of getting people to, to misdirect. That's part of the flex of, of getting a laugh. And, and when, when you don't have that, that's what a lot of new comedians don't understand. And that's what this book goes over. My book breaks that down. So you begin to understand, oh, I'm missing a step here. I got to set them up and get them thinking of something normal. And then so I can, as Peter McGraw says, benignly violate that with a, with a heightened punchline. So, um, yeah. So, so, uh, now I forgot what I was answering the, which question. And oh, you're already doing it. It's this, this, like, what'd you take from here? What did you state, not yeah. take from here? But uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, so with the improv, th- this is, this is like one of the things that I was always really good at as a stand up was dealing with hecklers. Yeah. And the reason why I was always good with hecklers is because I didn't go tit for tat. I'm not very good. I'm not like a roast comic. Um, I'm not a guy who can, you know, you know, respond and, and cut you down the way you just cut me down or try to, you know, in front of my audience. So what I was always good at is I was a good listener and I could listen. And to me, that's what, you know, you, you, your, your podcast is about yes anding, which is a, just a brilliant, brilliant concept, um, in general. That's what I teach my kids because what yes anding involves, it's not just agreement, which, which there's a, there's a general sense of agreement and there's also a higher level of agreement where you can disagree, but you're agreeing with a bigger thing. Yeah. But, but what, what yes anding also involves is listening. You got to listen to different levels of, of what the person was saying. And that's what I was realizing a lot of stand up comics weren't doing. They would, when you go tit for tat, you're listening to what they say and responding to what they say. Now, what, what I would do with hecklers, I would listen to why they said it, how they said mm-hmm. it, when did they say it in the show? 
Um, where were they sitting when they said it? And where where was I in my act when they said it? Um, what did they not say while they were doing the thing? And I would take all those things and I would listen and make conclusions and do what um, I think we were talking about before with, with Mick was a connecting world, like, like yeah. the mathematical part. That, that's what comedy is, is connecting unlikely worlds and finding yeah. those connections. And that's what seems mathematical about it and what Mick is so brilliant at. He can find two separate things and find the one thing that's common about those two worlds and bring those together. So now all of a sudden, you know, frog isn't funny and bank isn't funny, but he figures out a way to create a frog bank and then they're depositing flies and they're doing all these combined worlds. And, and that's the mathematics of, of the heightening game that really um, I, I fell in love with with um, improv. And so by taking classes and being trained by the best at Second City and also I was over at IO Theater and, and, um, mm-hmm. and the, uh, what's the other one? Annoyance. Annoyance. Sorry for forgetting that. They're, they're, no, that's they're fine. brilliant with Susan Messing in that gang. And and um I loved what it did for my stand-up because what it began to do is it began to give me a better idea of how to do those act outs, how to begin to see the bigger picture of what it is I was presenting. And so for me, there was no um, problem between those two worlds. But I, what I what I began to realize very quickly is you you can't go for a laugh in improv. You just can't try yeah. to be funny. You have to almost try to be serious, and through yeah. that, the humor comes out. And you've yeah. watched anyone who's Neil Flynn, uh, Dave Keckner, they're never trying to be funny. They're trying to be as serious as they can about this dang thing. And why are people keep laughing during my my serious attempt at this? And uh-huh. and that's what's funny. And the second they try laughter leaves yeah yeah fascinating uh all right we always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story i'm assuming you have one for us uh sure i i've thought a lot about this and there's there's so many parts of my life that were a key yes and moment but but what i have to trace it back to like the original yes and that that that, that brought all of this other stuff forth was i went to college to learn management information systems and uh, i minored in computer science and graduated with honors and uh, (laughs) i worked for two years in a corporate environment with at&t and so i was a programmer with at&t i had i did not know uh, any of this oh yeah i I was making a a fat five-figure salary oh dude you know um and um with bonus and um i it's but i was the guy who like you know picture a cubicle like say you say you're, you're zooming out and you're my boss and you're like like you know 100 yards away all you see is cubicle a line of cubicles and then you see one cubicle that has like six people's heads over it all laughing mm-hmm. and i'm in that cubicle and i'm working i'm doing my job i'm getting done the program i need to get done while entertaining these people who happen to be passing by and i could just pop 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 and he finally called me in and he was like mike you're doing a great job but why are you here? <laughs> what are you uh, doing? I love this guy. Right. And he, and, and, and he wasn't being a jerk. He, no. was, he was my friend. He was, but he was like, why are you here? This doesn't seem like, like you, you seem capable of doing so much more and, and um, almost like, like run little bird, but be free. Yeah, Get out of the yeah, nest before, yeah. before it traps you with the golden handcuffs or the, 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 the golden claw cuffs or whatever mm-hmm. a bird has. And um, so my big yes. And was when my mom cut, an article out that said Disney MGM studios is auditioning for comic actors. And I had been taking an acting class at the time, you know, um, just to mm-hmm. do anything creative, you know, and I was in a band. Um, and so I play keyboards, um, uh, cellophane rain. If you're wondering what the name of the band was, uh-huh. we're a very hipster, uh, eighties uh, band. And, uh, and um, I went to my acting coach and I said, should I do this? And he's like, listen, if you don't, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. I go, but this is kind of complicated. This audition is up in Cleveland and we live in Cincinnati. So there's, and I have to work on these. It's on a, it's on a, a, a Thursday. And so I'm going to have to like call in sick and did, he's like, do it. And so the um, audition was um, a minute. So we worked on like what happens in a minute. 
Um, what, what could I do that would be fun and funny in a minute? So I was like, well, an elevator ride ha- lasts a minute. Mm-hmm. And in Cleveland, they have the terminal tower, which is at the very top has a very luxurious restaurant. So I said, I'm going to do the luxurivator and it's going to be, uh, two, two characters. The first one is going to be the control panel engineer who welcomes people in. He's a very old gentleman who's mm-hmm. been there forever and he operates the control and he's, he's no, no monkey business with this guy. Right. And then the other character is a guy, um, who's the lounge singer. And then I, I spun around and, and pulled out a microphone out of my back pocket and, and began to sing such hits as when we get behind closed doors and other elevator pun mm-hmm. things but the whole thing lasted like less than a minute so that was what the funny part was it was like right in the middle of my act i'm like well there we are you're here and then you know and then so it killed like these 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 disney people hadn't seen anything like this and all that you know people were doing you know sound of music um monologues and stuff and i did this thing and they were like what is this so they called me back so I had to yes and again, and I had to call in sick a second time from mm-hmm. Cleveland to Cincinnati. Luckily, this was in the 80s when there was no caller ID or anything. You know, right, right. So they couldn't tell you where. They couldn't. And this was AT&T. This is the phone company that yeah, I'm calling. Yeah. So, you know, if they can't tell, nobody can. So then I, I, I did the second audition. I got videotaped, which is what all the people who looked like they were going to get the job. And I ended up getting the gig. So hmm. the big yes and that I would tell you is I gave up a corporate computer programming job for a corporate entertainment job with Disney MGM studios where I had to move everything I had down to Florida and um, begin a new life as an entertainer. And that's when I began to um, yes. And stand up comedy because yeah. I, I, I took that workshop. That's when I yes. And a second job at universal studios after I, I, I was um, got a, like a raise and a, and a bigger uh, a job with this uh, secondary studio. And then I yes anded the idea of going into a, the world of standup based on that. So the one yes and triggered all these other yes ands. And I could, I could trace it back to everything I've ever done. That first idea of saying, okay, this situation comes up. How do I not only agree with it and embrace it, but also heighten it to a new level. And, and that's to me is the, the key to yes. Anding is, is to really like to really listen in on what it is you're talking about and what you're, what it is you're being offered or what it is you're, you're um, considering or, or, or what it is that someone else is throwing out there and then zoom out and see all the angles of it and really accept that that's true. Even if, you know, if someone says I'm your mom, well, you can say, you know, yeah, my fake mom, because, you know, I'm adopted. That's not negating it. That's yes. And I'm agreeing that you're, mm-hmm. you are play a mother role. So, so there's ways to do that. So, so to me, the, the original yes. And I did by quitting that corporate job led to all the other risks taking that I did. And it wasn't risky though, because I realized it's simply saying yes to life and, and, and saying, um, I, I, I have the guts and I think the skills to pull this off. And so, and, and that boy, that, to being a, a, a husband, to being a father, mm-hmm. like you have to, you, th- there's a tremendous amount of faith and, and trust you have to have in yourself to do any of that. So yes, ending started with that really tough one, which is giving up that fat check. I love it. The book is called Finding Your Funny Muscle, How to Create Laughs Like a Pro. Mike Lucas, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks so much, Kelly.